Welcome back, students. This is Lecture 7, Homer's Iliad, Books 2 through 4. Well, let's get started with Book 2 here. So, I told you, we're going to talk about Book 2. We're going to, uh, all the way to the Catalog of Ships. We're not going to talk too much about the Catalog of Ships. I might talk about who is richest amongst the Achaeans. There are a few very rich Achaeans, uh, and uh, a lot of not very rich Achaeans. We'll talk about Book 3, the Tachoscopia, the single combat between Menelaus and Paris and the denouement of that, which I think you'll find quite frustrating because of the interference of the gods, particularly Aphrodite. And then we'll talk slightly about Book 4 and a very tragic misuse of the intellect by a very specific Trojan named Pandaros, who later in the tradition in Chaucer's Trilus and Cressida, as well as in uh, Shakespeare's Trilus and Cressida, has a rather large part, interestingly enough. So let's talk about Book 2 specifically. Now, in conjunction... With Thetis's request, Zeus sends an evil dream to confuse Agamemnon. Recall, at the end of book one, Thetis, at the request of her son, Achilleus, had gone to Zeus and asked him to punish the Achaeans for harming the honor of her young son, Achilleus. So, because he was dishonored by Agamemnon, he got his mother, Achilleus got his mother, to go implore Zeus to bring a, a disaster to the Achaeans. If Zeus nods his head, which he did, Will it happen what he wills? Yes, because he is the father of the gods, the steward of fate. Anything he says goes. Uh, so it is written, so shall it be done. Uh, nice reference back to uh, an, an old movie with Charlton Heston in it. In any case, Zeus whips up an evil dream. A dream here is a god, a minor god. And uh, the Greek conception of dreams is that they would stand by your head and whisper things to you. Not necessarily that they would be inside your heads. In fact, uh, some of these ancient Greeks, these Achaeans, seem to not even believe that you did your thinking in your head. They thought uh, that there was an organ called the phren, which we still have words from. Frenzy, frantic. To be frenetic means to be out of your mind. Well, they thought the phren was between your lungs. Sort of like where your heart is. Hmm, interestingly enough. In any case, this dream, it takes on the form of Nestor, wisest Achaean. So it's going to give uh, Agamemnon some advice. Some bad advice. But it's going to appear good because of the person from whom it comes. And so the dream lies and says, the Achaeans will take Troy. My goodness. Agamemnon has a dream. The night after, his greatest warrior leaves combat that says, you will win the war you've been fighting for ten years today. Now, you probably don't know much about dream interpretation, but there was a guy in the late 19th century, early 20th century named Sigmund Freud. And he said, one of the ways to interpret dreams is as wish fulfillment. So sometimes when you have a dream, it shows you what you want to happen. But we like to, we like to interpret the dream as being what is what to happen. Yes? What is going to happen. And there's a very difference between dreaming what you wish to happen, like school not happening tomorrow, and dreaming what is going to happen. Which is, school actually does happen, and you have to take a bunch of notes and do what you do at school every day. Now, all of that said, this dream is a lie. Agamemnon is going to show his prowess as a leader by how he treats this dream. This is what he does. Based on his dream that said that he would defeat the Trojans this very next day, even though his best warrior has just left the field of battle, which suggests that the dream is totally wrong, he summons a council of Achaean leaders. This is the so-called assembly, which Achilleus will not return to. Recall that Achilleus has two places he will not come back to, because these are two places he would be helpful, and he refuses to be helpful right now. Those places are battle, where he's most helpful. 
He sacked 23 cities, by the way. Um, and Assembly, where he's a little bit less helpful, but is still one of the leading voices of the Achaeans, though not as sharp as Nestor or Odysseus. And so, Agamemnon tells his dream. And he says, it took the form of Nestor. Something I want you to keep in mind here is that Nestor is actually at this assembly. And so Nestor is listening while Agamemnon says that he took advice from a dream that was in the form of Nestor. That would be like you saying, Mr. Schmidt, I didn't do my homework last night because in a dream you came to me and said, you, I don't have to do my homework. And I would say, dream me is trumped by real me. Real me has the real judgment. Dream me is just your visual representation of me. Obviously not going to be as smart. In any case, he tells his dream and how it took the form of Nestor and told him that the Achaeans will win this very day. So Nestor hears this. He listens to this. He's obviously very wise. It's like, so you had a dream and it told you you were going to win. And so now you want to summon the forces and fight against the Trojans, thinking that we actually will win. Your assumption is that Zeus sent you a true dream about what will happen. Well, this is what Nestor says very famously about this. He says, well, if any other Achaean were to tell me that they had such a dream, I would say that that dream was a lie. However, since you are king over many men, Agamemnon, I will not say it is a lie when you have heard this dream. Now, this is a very dangerous situation for Agamemnon. Why is it the case that his best, smartest, wisest advisor, Nestor, is not telling him that this is a bad course of action? Well, think back to book one. Last time somebody spoke in assembly against Agamemnon, what did they lose? And who were they? They lost their war prize, their Garos, Perseus. And who were they? They were Achilleus. The last time somebody gave good advice to Agamemnon, he took something valuable from that person. What is in Nestor's mind now, and what is keeping him from giving valuable advice to Agamemnon that would save Achaean lives? He knows, or he believes, that Agamemnon would then take something from him and not take his advice. So Nestor holds his tongue. It's a very bad situation to be in as a leader. Your advisors are there to help you with thoughts. Generally, they are smarter than you are, have a different perspective from you. The whole point of them is to help you not make bad decisions and to help you make good decisions. Agamemnon is not in such a situation. We can see the clouds gathering above the Achaeans. My goodness. So, Agamemnon continues his use of his brilliant judgment. I say that ironically, of course. He summons all of the Achaeans now. Instead of a private assembly with his captains strategizing, he now summons everybody into a major assembly, sort of like when we get together as a school. And uh, our headmasters addresses us. Well, Agamemnon tries a rhetorical device. A rhetorical device is very simplistic. A rhetorical device is a, an attempt to use a trick while speaking to get people's attention or to make a certain impact with a point. The, one of the simplest rhetorical devices that you all know is called reverse psychology. To say that what you want, you do not want, in the hopes that the person who has it will give it to you because you do not want it. I don't really want that from you, is the form this takes, and then the person says, yes you do, and then they give it to you. Now, what does Agamemnon do? He says, Achaeans, we have been here for ten long years. We've been fighting fruitlessly. And now, finally, I know that the way of Zeus is turned against us, even though he promised that one day I should hold Ilion, that I should raise it to the ground. Raise it in terms of fire. 
R-A-Z-E, not R-A-I-S-E. I know that you are all so tired and you miss your wives. You miss your possessions. Why don't we just give up? Why don't we just go back home? It's been long enough. Now, Agamemnon's hope is that when the Achaeans hear this, they'll say, no, Agamemnon, they'll beat their chests, they'll stomp their feet, they'll stomp their spears, and they'll, they'll beat their spears against their shields, saying, no, Agamemnon, we are valorous, battle-worn individuals. We wish to fight till the end. But that is not what happens. He is not a charismatic leader. He is not a charismatic speaker. Everybody starts to run back to the ships. It would be like if I yelled, class dismissed, right now. You wouldn't ask questions. You wouldn't say, where should we go next? You would just scamper out of the room. And then you'd have to deal with the lack of uh, structure out there. Which is also what would happen to the Achaeans here, by the way. Just because you get out of something you don't want to do doesn't mean that you go to something better, necessarily. Something well worth thinking about. In any case, the Achaeans run back towards the ships. They're going to leave. My goodness, this is awful. We're only into book two and chaos has already broken out amongst the Achaeans. It looks like the will of Zeus will be done. That said, the Achaeans have an ally, a strong ally. The queen of the gods, the Regina Coeli. Her name is Hera, wife of Zeus. Hera sees Athena. Athena is the active god. She's the one that often... Uh, Athena often takes Hera's will and passes it on to the mortals down on Earth. In this case, Hera tells Athena to fix the situation. Athena goes down to Earth. She finds the smartest Achaean. The smartest Achaean is Odysseus. She says, fix the situation. And so Odysseus goes about something to note. When he speaks to other captains, he speaks softly. He says, you need to get your people back in order. But when he speaks to enlisted people, the commoners, he beats them over the back or the head with a staff. And he says, get back in order. It is not a good thing for there to be many kings. And it's funny, because he treats people differently based on their rank. Because they need to be treated differently, especially at that time, based on their ranks. So, Odysseus is trying to get things back in order after Agamemnon makes a mess of things. Because, if things remain a mess, they'll never defeat Troy. Ten years of life, wasted. Wow. During this time, and I'll say that I have a very special relationship to this character in this slide, having been a teacher at the secondary <coughs> education level for this amount of time. We have the prototypical ugly trickster here. He is Thersites of the endless speech. He is literally described as of the endless speech. He never stops talking. And we actually receive more physical description of him than any other character in the Iliad. Helen does not receive as much physical description. Aias the Greater and his enormous size does not receive more physical description. Odysseus, Agamemnon, Achilleus, the most handsome, less physical description. So, who is this guy? He is Thersites. And Thersites is described as being... <coughs> Alright, back to it. Thersites is described physically as being short, as being bald. Yes, in fact, his head comes up to a point. He has patches of hair. Uh, so it's even worse than being fully bald. 
His knees are bandy-legged, which means they're knobby. They turn inwards. And he's got sort of a limp. He, uh, oh, yes, and of course the most important part is that he has a hunched back like Quasimodo from the Hunchback of Notre Dame. He is extremely ugly. Something to keep in mind about these ancients is that they drew a parallel between your moral goodness, that means your goodness of character and choice, and your beauty. Beautiful people are more moral. And in fact, I told you, because of the positive halo effect, people still to this day believe that, even though scientifically we know that that's not true. In any case, Thersites is something of a clown. And so, who are the two people that hate Thersites most? Well, think about it. It would be the two most effective humans who he would be abusing most. Odysseus hates him, who uses his words to put people to order and to make good things happen. And Achilleus hates him, who is the most effective, strongest of the Achaeans. And in fact, why Achilleus and Odysseus hate Thersites is he's always talking smack about the two most important Achaeans. Achilleus, the best fighter, and Agamemnon, the leader. Why is he talking smack about them? Well, it seems as if he has nothing better to say. That's why he's called of the endless speech. He never stops talking, and yet he never says something of value. And so he steps up. Even though described as both the ugliest and the worst Achaean, he says that Agamemnon is at fault for Achilleus leaving the war effort, and that everybody, all the Achaeans, should just leave. And that it's not even their war that they're fighting. He says very persuasive things. And yet, the problem with what he's saying, even though it's persuasive, is that he's trying to counsel these Achaeans to go home after ten years without any treasure, without any spoil. Well, what would have been the point of going there in the first place? Now, you might well argue that going home with your life is better than not going home with it, or not going home without your life. There we go. But that said, that's not how these Achaeans think. And I'll soon explain to you the ideas of Time and Kleos. Uh, honor and that which is said of you, or otherwise called glory. Well, Odysseus sees Thersites speaking. He's saying all sorts of nonsense. He's trying to cause chaos. Odysseus wants to win this war. He needs order. He sees Thersites, and he slams him on the back with his scepter. Actually, a single round here falls down Thersites' uh, uh, face. In fact, actually, I'll, I'll have y'all open your books to book three. Let's take a quick, or book two, excuse me. Let's take a quick look at line 210 or so. I might move us around just a little bit, just because it's sort of a funny quote, and I do like to read it quite a bit. You know, let's start at line 246. I'm going to read from there till about 275. Have your pencils out and ready to underline or circle words that I say that you need to. This is on page 99. If you were not listening, listening closely, we are starting at line 246. This is Odysseus speaking to Thersites of the endless speech. Fluent orator, though you be, Thersites, your words are ill-considered. Stop, nor stand up alone against princes. Out of all those who came beneath Ilion with Atreides, I assert there is no worse man than you are. Therefore you shall not lift up your mouth to argue with princes, cast reproaches into their teeth, 
nor sustain the homegoing. We do not even know clearly how these things will be accomplished. Whether we sons of the Achaeans shall win home well or badly, yet you sit here, throwing abuse at Agamemnon and Atreus, the son of the shepherd of the people, because the Danaean fighters give him much. You argue nothing but scandal. And this also I will tell you, and it will be a thing accomplished. If once more I find you playing the fool as you are now, never more let the head of Odysseus sit on his shoulders. Nev let me never more be called Telemachus' father. It's one of the few times that an Achaean addresses himself by whom he is the father of rather than who is his father. If I do not take you and strip away your personal clothing, your mantle, and your tunic, the mantle is a cloak, sort of like a cape, that cover your nakedness, and send you thus bare and howling back to the pastures, whipping you out of the ascending place with strokes of indignity. So he says that he will strip down Thersites naked if he ever hears him talking back again, and will whip him all the way back to his ships in front of people. This is sort of like the ultimate thing a mom might say to you when you are a seven-year-old, saying that she will pull down your pants and slap your butt red in front of everybody in public in the mall because you were acting wrong. It is a humiliating thing to say to somebody. And so he spoke and dashed the scepter against his back and shoulders, and he doubled over, and a brown tear dropped from him, this is Thersites, and a bloody welt stood up between his shoulders under the golden scepter stroke, and he sat down again, frightened in pain, and looking helplessly, about wiped off the teardrops. Sorry though the men were, they laughed over him happily. Ha! 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 And thus they would speak to each other, each looking at the man next to him. Come now, Odysseus has done excellent things by the thousands, bringing forward good counsels, and ordering armed encounters, but now this is far the best thing he has ever accomplished amongst the Argives. To keep this thrower of words, this braggart, out of assembly, never again will his brow, proud heart stir him up to wrangle with princes and words of revilement. And so, all the men, their spirit, their morale, is boosted by the fact that this uh, do-nothing-talk-much named Thersites has, had, uh, has gotten his comeuppance. When he talks smack, he got beaten on the back by Odysseus. People see justice is there, and they laugh at him. In fact, even though Odysseus has done incredible things like defeat excellent people in battle, as well as give excellent stratagems, what do the Achaeans say the best thing he's ever done is? Hit Thersides on the back with the scepter that shows you just how little they like Thersides and just how low they hold him in their regard. Alright. Odysseus then gives addressing the crowd a shot. You will notice immediately that his fluency as an orator, his ability to speak publicly, is far superior to Agamemnon's. This might tell you something about their relative level of intelligence and fluency with language as well. So, Odysseus tells a story, a story about an augur, a very weird thing happening. Apparently, there was a portent, or an omen, involving sparrows and snakes, before the Achaeans came to Troy. This, I think, was at Alex. I can't remember exactly where. But there was a snake that was slithering along the ground and then went up the trunk of a tree and found the nest of sparrows. And in that nest, it found nine eggs and it consumed them all whole while the mother sparrow was flapping wildly, trying to defend her eggs. She failed. That sparrow was then consumed herself by the snake. And Calchas, the prophet, from whom we've heard two major prophecies now, the prophecy that Chryseis, the concubine of Agamemnon, must be given back to Chryseis in order to propitiate 
Apollo and have him suffering plague on the Achaeans, as well as the prophecy that he gave at Alice that um, uh, the daughter of Agamemnon, Iphigenia, needed to be sacrificed to garner favorable winds from Artemis. Um, well, this is a third prophecy. Just as a snake consumes nine eggs and then one sparrow, ten discrete objects, so shall the Achaeans in the tenth year of a ten-year-long war finally consume, destroy Troy. Well, if I'm a thinking person, I think, how long have I been at Troy? Ten years almost. How long is it going to take by prophecy to destroy Troy? Ten years. He reminds the Achaeans of how far they've come, of the oaths they've made, and of how much farther they have to go, which is not very far at all. When you are reminded of the fact that the end is near, perhaps instead of slowing down, you start to sprint, to speed up. He motivates, re-motivates the people. Mm, very good. And so, Agamemnon thus agrees. Ah, yeah, something interesting here. Nestor shows his wisdom. He says, as after all the men listen to this speech, they are roused again. They are, uh, their morale is raised. They are ready to fight. They are preparing to enter into ranks and order in order to do combat against the Trojans, which they will do in Book 3. Nestor makes a very interesting suggestion, which I always like to mention. He says, we should put the cowards in the middle. And I think that that shows his intelligence well. Because if you're a coward during battle in the Achaean times, what you can do is find a dead person and strip them of some armor and run back to your tent and put the armor in your tent and then just sort of hang out there. One thing that was done is that these people were sort of scavengers. And if you kill somebody who's a big-time Trojan, like Hector or Paris, you take their helmet, their curse, their sword, and then you keep that at your home forever and maybe offer it as a guest gift to somebody and say, this was a sword that belonged to Hector. It shows that you're a great man. Now, Nestor says, let's put these people in the middle who would run away. Why? Well, cowards like to run away. If you put them in the middle of the ranks, what can they not do? Because they're wedged between their own people. Yes? They can't run away. So you get the best out of everybody when you do that sort of thing. Very interesting. Agamemnon agrees, and then the Achaeans prepare for battle, book three. Now, book three begins with battle. The Achaeans are silent, well-ordered, prepared to fight. The Trojans are described as loud, speaking many tongues, and beating their shields. They typically show passion before battle. Whereas the Achaeans show resolve. You might start to see here what is considered an authorial prejudice of Homer. Though I think it's more just showing what shows more confidence in a battle. The prejudice might be this. That Homer believes that the Achaeans are greater than the Trojans. So he portrays them as greater than the Trojans. But I think that more what he's trying to do here is show that a superior battle force does not have to resort to small tricks. Like making more noise or trying to appear bigger than they are. Something to keep in mind while you interpret this. In any case, the first thing that we see during the course of this battle is a young Trojan prince. A young Trojan prince that we've been wanting to see. His name is Paris. He is sometimes called Alexandros. Um, <clears throat> and so, Alexander was a name that definitely needed to be um, uh, cleansed and purified 
uh, by Alexander the Great because though Alexander the Great was known to be courageous and strong and a great uh, uh, tyrant king over many nations, the world in fact, Paris of Troy is very much a coward. And so, how is it that we know that? Well, first thing you should know about Paris on this battlefield is that every Achaean and Trojan wears armor. They wear a helmet, they wear a chess piece called a corslet, they wear um, a war belt, and they wear sandals. They have a small shield, often a short sword, and also a spear or two to throw. They also will pick up large rocks from the ground, because large rocks are, can be very effective for breaking people's jaws. And hips, you'll soon see. Was there a question? Uh, I was just going to say they kind of sound like hoplites. They kind of sound like hoplites, but hoplites are far more sophisticated yeah. and come much later during the Spartan time. Um, that'll, be, that'll be at least two centuries after at least the creation of this. The 6th and 5th century is when you really start seeing the uh, congealing of the Spartan and Athenian people. We'll talk about them during Athenian democracy. Um, Alright. In any case, every single person out on this battle is armed, as you would expect, except for Paris. Paris has a leopard skin on, because Paris wants to look fabulous, rather than to be functional, because Paris is known to be extremely, extremely handsome. So he doesn't have a helmet on, he doesn't have armor on, he just has his good looks on. Wow, good for him. I hope that will be useful in battle. Well, yes. Achilles wore a helmet. Achilles wore a helmet. Menelaus wore a helmet. Everybody wears a helmet. Of course, there are things coming at your head that will kill you, namely rocks and spears uh, and arrows, of course. In any case, Paris jumps out in front of the ranks of the Trojans. He is standing alone in front of the Achaeans. What a dazzling hero he appears to be. And so, who sees him? Well, the person who most wants to see him, of course, who's looking for him, who's prowling around trying to stalk him, it is Menelaus. Oh, my goodness. Perhaps we'll get to see a one-on-one -on -one combat between them during this initial engagement between the Trojans and the Achaeans, which is supposed to model the very first time that the Achaeans and the Trojans fought. And oh, my goodness, this war might end very fast. And so, Paris is out there alone. Menelaus is out there stalking him like a lion in a very powerful Homeric simile. And Paris sees Menelaus. Oh my goodness, are we going to fight? Are we going to see just how dazzling and brilliant Paris is as a fighter who's not even wearing armor? He must be so good at fighting. He sees Menelaus and then... <gasps> the simile that is used to describe him. Let's open our books to book three very quickly. The first 50 lines or so. I just want you to to see this. I just want you to see this. Yes. Yes. It's line 30. But Alexandros the godlike, this is Paris, when he saw Menelaus showing among the champions, the heart was shaken within him. To avoid death, he shrank into the host of his own companions. As a man, this is very famous, this is a Homeric simile, which is an extended simile often involving animals. As a man who has come on a snake in the mountain valley suddenly steps back and the shivers come over his body. And he draws back and away, cheeks seized with a green pallor, so in terror 
of Atreus' godlike son, Alexandrus, lost himself again in the host of the haughty Trojans. My goodness. What is the reaction of Paris of Troy upon seeing Menelaus? He shivers in fear and withdraws back into the Trojan army in the same way that somebody who almost steps on a snake unseen on a trail and recognizes the snake at the last moment goes, ah! and turns whitish green. And that is where we will end today.